Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come. In power and truth, we invite you. We ask you to give us a word that we can hear, a word we can understand, a word we can believe, and a word to which we can respond. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. So one of the tasks at United Parish, if you're the preacher, which you should know, you never know when we'll ask somebody up here to preach, is to come up with the the picture that you see on the front of the bulletin. And this week, I did a Google search on the voice of God. And it's really hard to find a picture of the voice of God, I found. Uh, The picture you have here is by James Tissot, and it's called The Voice of the Lord. But you really don't see any voice. Voice is something you can't see. And this story that Betty read so beautifully is all about Samuel missing. He doesn't get what the voice is. It's not like, like Abraham who had an angel physically appear before him to deliver the voice of God. And it wasn't like Moses who had the burning bush as a visual. Samuel just gets a voice. So it sort of makes sense that he doesn't quite understand at first. And Samuel has a really special story. Before his mother Hannah gave birth to him, before he was even conceived, she was one of those women who was barren. We see that over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. And and she was praying to God for a child. And and she said, "If, if you give me a child, God, I will turn that child over to you in your service. And so when she gave birth to Samuel, that was where he was destined. And as soon as he was weaned and ready to be away from his parents, scholars think somewhere around the age of seven, Hannah brought him to Eli. So Samuel was living with this priest and learning how to be an apprentice to this priest and taking care of him as he aged on and on. So in this night in question, God calls to Samuel and says, Samuel, Samuel, can you hear me? And Samuel gets up thinking it's Eli, and he goes to see if Eli's okay. And that happens three times, three times. Samuel, can you hear me now? And he gets up and checks on Eli. And finally, the third time, Samuel, can you hear me now? It's Eli who says, no, wait a minute. That's the voice of God calling you. And Samuel just didn't quite recognize it yet. So Samuel goes back to lie down as Eli tells him to and to listen to what God has to tell him. A little bit like Samuel, I've been reading a lot about Martin Luther King Jr. this week in preparation for this this sermon. And I've been reading from his autobiography and I'm going to insert a bunch of quotes here from him just so you all know where, where they came from. They're not mine. Um, But Martin Luther King is a self-described PK, or preacher's kid. And I know we have some out there in in our congregation. Raise your hand if you're a preacher's kid. Yeah, we've got a few here. And from what I hear, if you grow up as a preacher's kid, everybody's always watching you, waiting. Are you going to get the call? Is it going to happen? Are you destined to preach in the pulpit? 
And, and Martin Luther King Jr. also expresses he had that same sort of upbringing, and he felt eyes watching him. And he says, of course I was religious. I grew up in the church. My father is a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. My great-grandfather was a preacher. My only brother is a preacher. My daddy's brother is a preacher. So I didn't have much of a choice. So similar to Samuel, I think King felt just imbued with a sense of religion and church from a very, very young age. Now King describes his baptism a little differently. He was raised in a tradition that baptized people upon choice. And, and he, he describes his baptism as taking place during a revival. And they had one of the revival leaders come and speak to all the children who were of the right age to see how many of them were ready to be baptized. And he says it this way. My sister was the first one to join that morning. And after seeing her join, I decided that I would not let her get ahead of me. So I was next. I've never given this matter a thought, and even at the time of my baptism, I was unaware of what was taking place. From this, it seems quite clear that I joined the church not out of any dynamic conviction, but out of a childhood desire to keep up with my sister. So apparently God can speak through sibling rivalry as well. <laughs> so King, as he entered his teen years, which I know a lot of us worry about our teens and what's going to happen to them, and I'm guessing his parents had similar worries because King describes at 13, he started feeling himself pulling away as he was taught things in school that conflicted with the idea of inerrancy of scripture, that scripture was literally true, and that was what he was being taught at church. And he could hold these two things together and say, they don't work. How does this work? So when he got to college with these questions, he encountered a couple of professors. I like to think of them as maybe King's Eli's, <laughs> explaining to him a little bit about what's going on. And these were theology professors who had also been taught a lot about theology and were religious men, as King describes them. And they said to him, it's, it's not about whether the myths and legends that you read in the Bible are true. It's whether there's truth to be found in these stories. And all of a sudden, King had the hook again. And these devoutly religious men who, whom he admired and looked up to were giving him a way back into the church. And that's when he experienced his call. And you might think maybe it was a huge divine revelatory call for him to go into ministry, but he describes it like this. My call to the ministry was not miraculous or supernatural. On the contrary, it was an inner urge calling me to serve humanity. So he didn't have a revelation at this time like Samuel. He didn't hear a voice telling him to go into the church. He was living into what he had always grown up to. So he went to seminary, and he was a good student, or so he says in his autobiography. I have no reason to doubt that. He did find Hebrew assignments difficult. But he worked really dil diligently, and he took it seriously. He didn't just jump through hoops to be ordained. 
Eventually, King landed just down the road at Boston University at the School of Theology. And he had an interesting description of looking for a place to live in Boston, and he wrote this. I remember very well trying to find a place to live. I went into place after place where there were signs that rooms were for rent. They were for rent until they found out I was a Negro, and suddenly they had just been rented out. Here in our beloved city of Boston, King was turned away. When he graduated, the first church he interviewed with was in Montgomery, Alabama. He was already married at that point. And he really struggled with the idea of returning to the South. He didn't want to. And it was a real, something he really had to work into. He had two offers from churches in the North. He knew he could go into those pulpits and into those congregations and do a lot of good. But after a lot of prayer, he decided he was called to go to Montgomery, Alabama, to the South, where he felt like he could do more good. And it was there in that environment after the Montgomery bus boycott that King found himself faced with a choice once again. He had to figure out what his path was in this time period of civil rights and social justice. Did he join it or not? He knew it was going to be hard. He knew his family would face problems if he did it. He had a young child at the time. And it was a really hard decision for him. He prayed over and over and over again about this choice. And this is what he said happened. One night it seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. So like Samuel, King had his moment of revelation, a voice speaking to him, guiding him and directing him. And Samuel and King share another commonality. As a prophet, Samuel really struggled with the people of Israel. They wanted a king, and his message to them was, no, 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 you have God. You don't need a king. You have one God. And they kept saying, but we want to be like our neighbors who have kings. And his message to them was, no, you don't. Kings will take away your sons. They'll die in war. They'll take away your resources so they can pay for those wars and the palaces they'll build. You do not want a king. Samuel's message just couldn't be heard by the people. And finally, God said to, that, to Samuel, let them have a king. They want a king. Let them see. It's the only way they're going to learn. So Samuel anointed both Saul and David in his lifetime as king. Now Martin Luther King had a lot more of a profound impact, I think. He had a little more success than Samuel. The civil rights movement moved a lot of changes into our world and into his world. And we have much to be grateful for. But he was also arrested his house was bombed. There were people who couldn't hear the message he had to give. And eventually, 
That's the same thing that took his life, were people who couldn't hear the message he had to give. We've had a big year as far as civil rights and what's going on in our country. We've watched the events in Ferguson, Missouri, and in New York City, and I'm sure in countless other towns that the media didn't notice. And we've watched rights be violated, and we've watched people protest. And I can't help but wonder, what would King say if he were here? It doesn't feel sometimes like we've gotten very far. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes wonder about my own personal journey. What am I doing? What have I done? Have I done enough? And I'm always constantly asking myself that. And I'm embarrassed because I don't feel like I've, I've done enough, but I don't know what more to do. I think I'm still listening for that direction. And this week, writing this sermon's been really hard for me. And I've watched a lot of my friends struggle with it, colleagues in particular in Oklahoma. And in Oklahoma, there's a petition right now. They have a law that you can't wear a hooded shirt if you're doing a, committing a crime. No joke, that's on the books. But they want to make it more stringent. They want to say that you can't wear a hooded shirt in public. So a lot of my friends in Oklahoma are preaching today with hooded sweatshirts on. And I, I watched the discussion, and, and I, you know, they, they, they made great points. This is not my sweatshirt. <laughs> it's a little big. Um, they make really good points. My, my pastor friends are saying that, that all this is, is an excuse for more racial profiling by police, that it's discriminatory and biased and wrong. And I heard what they said, and I read what they said, and I said, absolutely, but if I wear a sweatshirt, nobody in Massachusetts is going to know why I'm wearing it, except maybe my friends from Oklahoma over here. Um, so I, I didn't feel like that was my call. And then Friday night, as I was cooking dinner and still wondering about this sermon and where it was going, I realized we were out of milk. And, and my almost 20-year-old son is home from college, and he's our biggest milk drinker. So I hollered, and I said, Jessup, run and get a gallon of milk. It's two blocks away. So I hear the door open and shut, and he leaves. And I'm cooking away. And a few minutes later, the doorbell rings. The dog starts barking. And I go around the corner, and I see a figure at the door, looking a lot like this, holding a gallon of milk with a big grin on his face. And he says, Mom, I left, my, I left my keys at home. And I stood there, and my throat was in my, my heart was in my throat, because I realized that if we were in Oklahoma and this law was in place, he could have gotten in a lot of trouble. And all of a sudden, it got personal. So I'm not sure where this is going still. Maybe this sermon is still in progress. But Friday night was a big wake-up call for me, personally. And maybe it was my moment where I was standing there saying, God, I can hear you now. What will you have me do?